questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight, we delve into the enigmatic depths of a lost civilization, a place of legend and lore, a place known as Atlantis. Our guest will share his riveting insights into visions of Atlantis, the title of his new book. In this captivating discussion, we embark on a journey through time, unearthing the ancient legacy of Atlantis. We explore the history of this lost civilization, its rediscovery, and the various visions and revelations associated with it. But this is not just a historical exploration. We are challenged to question our understanding of the past and the very fabric of our reality. This conversation is a testament to the human spirit's relentless pursuit of knowledge, even in the face of the unknown. It's a journey that takes us from the depths of the ocean to the heights of human imagination. We don't just learn about Atlantis. We are immersed in its mystery, its grandeur, and its tragedy. Our guide for this journey is Michael Liflem, a distinguished researcher, adjunct professor of history and philosophy, and a columnist for New Dawn magazine and kennedysandking.com. A scuba diver and guitarist, Leflem grew up in South Florida, attended the Harriet L. Wilkes Honors College and Florida State University, where he studied Western intellectual history and U.S. foreign policy. Prepare to be transported to a time of ancient wisdom and technological marvels, a time when humanity harnessed the power of the stars and the earth. Get ready to question what you know about our past and to dream of what our future could be. Welcome to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To access tonight's full interview and all of our exclusive material, simply join the Veritas Plus family by clicking on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And while you're there, don't forget to check out the Veritas store for a range of great products, including focused life force energy. Experience the power of FLFE with a 15-day free trial today. No credit card required. We're excited to announce the launch of our brand new Veritas Plus Insider, your source for exclusive news and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you're looking to get in touch with Mel, have a guest suggestion, or would like to provide feedback, simply click on the contact button on our website. So sit back, relax, and enjoy tonight's show. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. And his latest book is titled The Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming Our Lost Ancient Legacy. His website is michaelliflem.com. And directly from Monterey, Mexico, I'd like to welcome Michael Liflem. Hello, Michael, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm good. My pleasure. Well, I always ask the question, how does somebody like you get into researching Atlantis? <laughs> well, that's that's a good question. I I don't really know if I have a <clears throat> an easy answer for that. You know, I was a kind of traditional, you know, professor of history. Um, occasionally, I would teach ancient history survey courses. And so... You know, occasionally you will run across that story if you teach, say, Plato's dialogues like the Critias or Timaeus. But it's kind of strange. You know, one day I can't really explain how, but I almost just became you know, almost like a hypnotic suggestion, I think is the closest way to put it. Um, 
where I became almost obsessed with looking at this subject, you know, and I had always been interested in alternative views of the pyramids or extraterrestrials and things like that. But I had never given this topic much thought. And, you know, that kind of one day um, sitting in the park, just thinking about it led to really like a seven year investigation where I spent, you know, dozens of hours a week reading, researching, taking notes, and just for myself, never intending to, you know, ever publish a book on it. But by the end of the investigation, I thought, you know, this would make a great book and it would really add to the literature because I think what I've done is kind of bridge the traditional um, hard sciences like archaeology, anthropology, oceanography with clairvoyant sciences like clairaudience, channeling, remote viewing, and shown how, you know, despite being very different means to peer into the past to get a vision, they actually overlap and in many cases corroborate each other's um, views of the past. And so to my great surprise, um, I was really shocked to see how much of the things certain clairvoyants in history who were talking about this lost civilization, um, how many of those things were later supported, sometimes over a hundred years after their channelings with modern discoveries. And so, you know, that's why I called the book Visions of Atlantis, because <clears throat> it is literally, in some cases, clairvoyant visions of the past. But it's also kind of a study of how, you know, history is written, uh, how people in my profession sometimes distort history and sometimes bend uh, the narrative, depending on the times we live in and depending on certain, you know, political or social exigencies that might color an otherwise, you know, credible story and turn it into, say, a myth or a legend um, and things like that. So I was really just interested in kind of updating the, the franchise, if you will, and bringing in the latest, you know, hard information and, and trying to find some of the more obscure and overlooked clairvoyant evidence that was really compelling. And so that's what I tried to do. You use a word in the book a few times, rediscovery. What do you mean yes. when you say that? Well, you know, I mean, think about the Renaissance, you know, it means rebirth. Um, you know, in the early 1500s, you had people, you know, rediscovering, for example, the ancient legacy of the West. You know, you had Europeans rediscovering ancient Roman classics, ancient Greek classics. And I think in many ways, you know, people in the 19th and 20th century started to really rediscover this story from, you know, 360 BC, one of the most compelling accounts from Plato. People started to think, well, what, what really was he talking about? You know, and I think that really was the kind of rebirth of the topic um, was probably, you know, around the late 19th century with publication of, say, Ignatius Donnelly's book, The Antediluvian World, which, again, you know, I think a lot of people think that most researchers of this topic are, you know, uh, out in the desert doing peyote or something like that. But this was a sitting U.S. congressman who was best friends with Abraham Lincoln, and he studied Atlantis for most of his professional adult life and wrote a book that's still in print, one of the best books. 
for its time. And, you know, in that sense, I think that's what I mean. It's just, this is a story that's really never been um, fully solved because it was so long ago. You know, you're talking 12,000 years ago for the purported end of this civilization. And that's a hard number for people in my profession to wrap their minds around because we are supposed to believe that, you know, humanity was in a hunter-gathering state globally at that time. So, Wherever you look, wherever you research, and you probably found this out, is that most people say this is allegory, this is just mm-hmm. fiction, a myth. But then again, there's there's information out there that comes all the time. You, you have the Bimini Road, you have, uh, you know, Western Cuba, what's in the middle of the yes. Atlantic, the, the, the Saharan Desert, the Eye of the Sahara. There's mm-hmm. more information out there. And whenever you ask anybody in academia, they don't want to go there. How do you reconcile being an academic <laughs> with all this you're basically stepping outside the box and not, not that many people do that. Yeah, I guess I'm lucky because I'm only an adjunct, you know, I don't have an office with my name on it. I'm not tenure track, but I'm sure if I were, I would be denied tenure as many people have. Um, you know, look at Robert Schock, who was a tenured professor oh, yeah. in um, Boston University. And I mean, they tried to run him out of town when he said the Sphinx was actually right. 12,000 years old. Yeah. And uh, he was just doing his job, using his own expertise. And, you know, look at what they did to Rupert Sheldrake, who's an Oxford PhD. They banned him from TED Talks because he said that morphogenetic fields are real and it contradicted their materialistic paradigm. So I'm lucky because I'm kind of, you know, a professor for hire, you know, so to speak. So I don't have any stake in that sense. But I was actually pleasantly surprised because I sent the book to all my old um, graduate school professors from 15 years ago. And, you know, rather than, you know, making fun of me, um, and I even sent it to a, a professor emeritus from Harvard that I, that I still had his contact. I met him at a party 20 years ago almost. And just to see, and they all actually were like, you know what? We've really never thought of it this way because what you did was you took it seriously. And, and you did it in such a way that, you know, th- this is really difficult to just outright refute because we weren't aware that so many people, you know, philosophers, congressmen, uh, scientists, the people that discovered the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, for example, said that we found Atlantis, you know? Um, so it's interesting because I've never faced that kind of professional pushback, but yeah, naturally, you're going to get um, flack from people who are stuck in a kind of, you know, materialistic paradigm that, you know, itself is an ideology because you can review the work of, you know, Dean Radin at Stanford and the Noetics Institute or the Strategic Research Institute, SRI. And you see that clairvoyance and remote viewing are very valid scientific pursuits. They're just difficult to standardized and not a lot of people are are accurate when they do it but when you find people that can do it or you find people like Edgar Casey, who you know gave fourteen thousand readings and healed thousands of people with a 99 percent accuracy rate um well then you should pay attention when he starts talking incidentally about ancient egypt or atlantis or you know timelines and human catastrophe cycles because a lot of what he said, I discovered, absolutely does correlate with 
archaeological evidence, you know? And I think that was kind of why a lot of people have been very receptive of the book because they said, you know, I'm used to reading books that either debunk this subject or just show you kind of the science of like, let's say, megalithic architecture, but don't really engage with what the culture itself would have been like on the ground level because we only have a handful of accounts and they're quite, you know, vague when it comes to day-to-day life. And so through these clairvoyant visions from Frederick Spencer Oliver, Edgar Casey, Barbara Han Clough, and other people, I was able to really kind of zoom in on a kind of 2020 level and, and really try to piece together, you know, what would it be like to live in, let's say, 11,000 BC on the Atlantean capital city. Um, and I, I know that sounds strange, perhaps to your viewers, but I would suggest you read those chapters because it's very difficult to explain some of the things these channelers said if they were creating a fiction, you know? I'm honored that a lot of those names that you mentioned have gone through our program and, you know, Dr. Robert Schock, uh, Barbara Hanklau, um, mm. Rupert Sheldrake, he and I are in communication still. Hopefully wow. that's going to happen in the future. But many people that step outside, they're criticized. And some people say, follow the science, follow the science. <laughs> well, I'm following the science. But it seems that instead of following the science, they follow the scientist. And I hate to, to say that but a lot of them are bought and paid for by the grants that are given to those institutions. And I'm not saying all of them, but, you know, a, a name comes to mind, a good friend of this program, Dr. Claude Swanson, who recently passed away, a MIT-trained scientist who wrote two books, The Science of the Paranormal. And he started this with, you know, in all seriousness. So you read his books and some of these others, and you think, why is an academia... It's not a, they have to take it seriously, but why haven't they adopted some kind of a mechanism to look into these things? I mean, even I disagree with Dr. Shock on this. He says the Yanaguni is a natural formation. I, I don't think so. I've had Graham Hancock on the show. He's that's really he's strange. dived he and you're that. a scuba diver. So, yeah, you that's know, really, Robert Shock says that's a natural. Really? He, he told really me surprising, man. He that's told me really it's a, surprising. And I, I asked him, where in nature do you see these lines that, that go, you know, straight and then 90 degrees to the left wow. and back? And uh, I was surprised when wow. he said that to me. Wow. That's very interesting. Um, that's very interesting. As a diver, uh, last, what do you I say? I mean, as a diver, if I encountered Yonaguni, I mean, having dived for 20 years, I've never in my life encountered a reef or a cliff or any kind of underwater structure that resembles that structure. I mean, it's so obvious when you see the pictures from say Graham Hancock's book underworld, that yeah. he's not diving on a reef or a seamount or something like that. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because it reminds me just of, you know, even within, let's say the quote unquote, and I don't even like this word, you know, cause language is very big part of this whole, misunderstanding but the let's say alternative archaeology field you know there's a huge spectrum of people you know there's people who think um let's say the sphinx is older than the official which there is none but let's say the accepted date but it couldn't be twelve thousand bc you know or the pyramids perhaps were not built by khufu but there is no way people from atlantis built them in ten thousand five hundred bc like Edgar casey said 
Um, so it's interesting because I was really just a neutral observer, honest to God. I, I did not go into this trying to prove or disprove. And I think that's why the tone of the book, most of my readers have said, you know, in their reviews that that's the main thing they took away with. You really did go above and beyond in your attempt to be neutral. You know, when you see things that look like a match, you talk about it. When you see other things that don't really look like a good match, you, you, you're not afraid to say like, yeah, you know, this, this is hard to explain. And we don't have evidence of this thing. Casey said, yeah, you know, or other people, but it's, it's been interesting because I really just wanted to show, you know, I wanted to write a book that was, you know, accessible for a person who has never read one book on Atlantis or a person who like myself has read hundreds, you know, or yourself, that there's always something to get from it because a big part of this was sifting through thousands of obscure clairvoyant channelings and basically storyboarding things that people had not done yet and showing how quite to our surprise, they really do overlap. And these people were never communicating with each other, which to me lends credibility to the idea that they were channeling a truth. And, you know, like in the case of Edgar Casey, when he said in 1932, just offhand, he's giving a reading and he says, you know, the Sahara Desert thousands of years ago used to be a fertile grassland, marshland with an extensive river system. And in fact, that river system began where the Nile begins now, and it emptied into the Atlantic Ocean on the Congo end of the country. Now, he said that in 1932. No one suspected that. Until 1986, space shuttle imaging radar penetrated six feet below that area, just offhand, not trying to corroborate. They were just doing their own survey and indeed found that what he said was true. You know, and you start adding these kinds of things up and it becomes really strange because it, it does seem to me now from having studied it for eight years that his version of what happened and when regarding Atlantis actually is probably a correct and accurate historical account that has just been completely lost because we're talking a civilization that was destroyed almost entirely with remnant populations surviving in Egypt, the Pyrenees Mountains, and the Yucatan 12,000 years ago, which is an incalculably long amount of time for the average person to wrap their mind around. Well, I'm looking at maps that are only a few hundred years old that mm -hmm. compare the, the recent map of the Sahara Desert. It's completely bare. There's nothing there. But just a few hundred years ago, I see maps that show cities with multiple rivers going everywhere with animals and civilizations in that part of the world. And then you think of, I go to Granada all the time. And in fact, I'm going to be there next week because I love that area. And nice. it always impresses me that they always talk about the Moors, the Moors, the Moors. But there's not that much information lately about that. And the amount of knowledge they brought to southern Spain. And where did they come mm -hmm. from? Morocco, Morocco didn't just, it's just not that part of the world. If you look at all that Northern Africa part that was populated in the past. very interesting. The question is, what happened? What caused the, the Saharan desert to, to be what it is today? Right. No, and you know, that's a, that's a subchapter in um, part five of the book, um, Fragments of Atlantis, where, you know, I take a kind of 
blunt direct quote from Edgar Casey when <clears throat> someone had the foresight to directly ask him, not just in a, a oblique way like they usually did, but they directly asked him, you know, where is the evidence that we could find in the 20th century of this former mid-Atlantic civilization? And he straight up says, you can find evidence of this in Morocco, the Pyrenees Mountains, the Yucatan, and the Americas. You know, and so I just took his word for it and I did a quick well, I did a multiple year investigation, but I presented it as a kind of, you know, Frommer's guide to Edgar Casey's Atlanta. Let's go to these places. Let's see why he said Morocco. Let's see why did he say the Pyrenees? Is there anything unique there? And to answer your question about or your observation about Morocco, you know, I mean, let's think about it. Here you have, you know. Well, first of all, right across from Morocco, you have the oldest city in Europe. You have Cadiz, Spain, founded in, I believe, the 13th century BC by Phoenicians, you know. And again, Gades, which is what it was called previous to being called Cadiz, Gades was a Atlantean king, according to Plato, who had dominion over southern Spain. You know, and then in North Africa and Tunisia, you have a city called Gabes. You know, they just changed the D to a B. Then you have the Atlas Mountains that run all across Morocco. And of course, in Mauritania, you have this strange, whether it's natural or artificial remains to be determined. But perhaps it was a duplicate of the mid-Atlantic circular city, part of the capital, you know, that Plato described. Maybe it was a reboot. Maybe it was natural, like Randall Carlson thinks. Who knows? But that river system, and there were two really independently, one where Casey said right around Cameroon and another one that flowed right around where the eye of the Sahara is. So, you know, I talk about all these things kind of just offhand in the book, like asking more questions, really, and showing people rather than declaring, here it is, you know. Because, again, I've always told people, saying I found Atlantis or where is Atlantis is like looking for the Roman Empire in a 20-square-mile plot of the earth, you know, and finding ruins in Carthage or something and saying, we found Rome. And it's like, no, it was a global or Mediterranean global empire that left prints all over the area and such was atlantis according to plato and all of the channelers unanimously said the same thing that by the final destruction because there were probably three the final one was the one plato was describing so you're talking a large island probably twice the size of england off the coast of portugal that had dominion over other islands in its archipelago that had colonies all through the Mediterranean, up to Egypt, and that was aware of the American continent, because Plato mentions the Americas in his account from 360 BC, which was given to him via Solon, his distant relative, who was told it by Egyptians, who Edgar Casey, who had never read Plato and was an uneducated man from Hopkinsville, Kentucky, who only read the Bible, said, well, before the final destruction of Atlantis in around 10,200 BC, the surviving, you know, factions went to different places, but one of the places they went was the Giza Plateau. 
and rebooted their culture and built the Great Pyramid in preparation for the coming cataclysm, which Casey says was told to them by whatever you want to call it, extraterrestrial or interdimensional forces at a portal, which is also an interesting kind of sub-thread that runs throughout the whole story because, you know, Casey's talking about this in the 30s before the UFO flap of 1947 and, you know, beyond that became public knowledge. But post-Casey channelers almost unanimously talk about, you know, the extraterrestrial intervention and seeding and how Atlantis was not a fully, let's say, extraterrestrial colony, but that there were time periods where these beings or the gods or the Elohim or the Anunnaki, take your pick, did, you know, give technology and check on the progress. And Atlantis was a big part of their little, you know, experiment, for example, according to, say, Phyllis Schlemmer, whose account is heavily premised on the seeding of humanity around that time. So, you know, I just try to look at the whole spectrum. You know, it's kind of like a buffet. You know, you don't have to eat everything, but you can look at it and make up your own mind because I never liked being told what to think. I find that's intellectually insulting. And I would never presume to know the truth. Do you know what I mean? I have to tell you, what you just said is the motto of this program. I tell everybody, this is all a buffet. We discuss the full spectrum of things. And sometimes people don't like certain subjects that I discuss. And I tell them, you go to a buffet, you're not going to like every single (laughs) item. But at least you should sample them. If you like, you want more. Exactly. So I'm thinking of all the things you're saying, and you're opening a lot of doors. I'm thinking of Morocco. I remember going to certain places in Morocco and seeing the, the, what they say was Roman remnants of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And then, you know go all the way to New York, Ellis Island. And I'm looking at this building, Ellis Island, the building, Mm -hmm. and it's Moorish architecture. And I'm thinking, how in the world did that get there? And then you see the Statue of Liberty, which is built on top or, or, you know, placed on on top of a star fort. It's almost like something was here before. And this area, and I don't mean to get outside of your your jurisdiction of your research, but maybe (laughs) you know where I'm coming from. But... Maybe this area was repopulated and we hear of this orphan trains and all these yes. things. And the, 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 the panoramic picture or photograph from San Francisco from the late 1800s. Right. All you have to do is look at it and see so many Orthodox churches and cathedrals. But that allegedly was built in 40 years by a bunch of miners. Come on. Right. No, there's a, and you know, I didn't come to that kind of, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the mud flood Tartaria, you know, the ancient America's reboot camp until very recently, probably a couple of years ago. But I really was astounded and I haven't really, you know, fully flexed like I have on Atlantis on that subject. But, you know, it is fascinating, particularly when, um, you know, you see those pictures of, say, some of the world's fairs and you're told that these were put up in 20 days and then taken down. And it's like, some of this architecture is astounding, you know? And it's like, was that really just for a world's fair or did something else happen that was, you know, not transmitted even in, you know, semi-modern times. Um, And that's a good question. I'm very open-minded when it comes to that. Um, But I don't, I don't have really a deep knowledge um, to speak on, you know, that, that subject, but, you know, it's just another reminder that, 
you know, like you said, with these maps from a few hundred years ago that, you know, show regions that it's like, I mean, look at the Piri race map from, you know, 1500 AD that's exactly. showing Antarctica without ice. You know, and when Charles Hapgood asked the Naval uh, Division of Map Making in the 60s, wrote a letter saying, can you explain how a Renaissance map from Turkey that was using older source maps knew that Antarctica existed and that was free of ice and accurately mapped the land under the ice. And they said, actually, no, we don't because we have no idea how somebody with naval knowledge from the 15, you know, hundreds could be aware of that because that was not known until we discovered it. And then later, you know, took core samples and things like that. So again, I think a big part of this confusion, you know, is the fact that what Edgar Casey specifically said, and I think what a lot of people just know intuitively, which is, you know, the Library of Alexandria and the Serapium attached to it were the largest collection of manuscripts in the world before the Vatican Library. And, you know, after three destructions and multiple thefts, you know, you're talking whatever is left when we say, well, where are the records of this? Or where are the records of Jesus in India? Where are the records of the pyramids or this? Well, according to Edgar Casey, that all existed, but was destroyed in the multiple destructions of the millions of scrolls and volumes in the Library of Alexandria. Or in the second destruction, which was deliberate, was probably taken away to the Vatican. Exactly. So and that's more plausible to me, by the way. Yeah, 100%. You know, the first one I think was legit because... Caesar set the docks on fire, trying to save Cleopatra from her crazy brother. And it was just a spur of the moment in battle that the fire spread and burned down most of the library. But the second one, when was Theodosius I ordered the destruction, you know, I, I think we know damn well that he didn't just burn everything. He took that knowledge and it's down there in the, you know, 20 miles or whatever of, you know, bookshelves that nobody can see. And who knows? That brings the the whole mystery school, which I consider, by the way, our platform, a modern-day mystery school. Look at this stuff that we're talking about, Hypatia. I'm thinking of just Hypatia right now. But also, you mentioned things that, that people still question. Look at the Nazca lines. You even you know, put some illustrations and photographs in your book. Uh, the condor, condor, 443 feet long, the spider, the cat, this and that. How in the world did they do that? And why isn't science saying this was impossible unless you had a way to look from above? Well, exactly. Do you know, it's so interesting that you brought that up because no more than three days ago, I was reading, I think it was book five of the Convoluted Universe by Dolores, Dolores Cannon. Yep. Incredible series. And in that book, she's giving a reading or she puts somebody in a regression and they're giving her a reading basically. And that person is describing creating the Nazca lines. And it was so interesting because according to the person who, you know, was channeling this information, the person said, Oh, you guys think this is like a, a like a profound message or an alien landing strip or something. He goes, no, he goes, I was just doodling with my mental faculties from a flying ship. And I was an artist and I just drew these sketches and I liked them. So I kept them. And Dolores asked, well, how did you do it? He said, with my mental faculties, we could do that. 
I just moved the sand and it did what I wanted to because I understood an arcane science that you will one day rediscover. And I thought, you know, in a weird way, if people did have that ability, why wouldn't they do that? You know, and I almost said as much in my book. I think in my book, I said they were just artistic expressions for people who were arriving by ship, by airship. Like, welcome to this region. You know, look at this really nice artwork. And it was funny because Dolores said it wasn't even that sophisticated. It was just a guy doodling, like on an Etch-A-Sketch. So, And if it was done in the past, it might be done in the future. And I think the, the yeah. biggest conspiracy of all, it's a secret to our own potential that has been curtailed. I don't know. You can, you can, you can call it Florida in the water and, and, and the you know, all this stuff. But I'm thinking of all my conversations with Dolores. I'm, we went to conferences together. And I don't know if she told me this in private or in one of our, our interviews, but based on what we were discussing here, she says, you know, I used to go to the Vatican all the time. And then one day I went, she said, and there was this guide who said, Dolores, I'm going to take you to places where people, tourists don't go. I'm like, oh. So they went inside certain places and she asked the question, but please explain why the, why is there so much Egyptian artifacts here? And he goes, oh, you don't know? It's because Christianity comes all the way from all the Egyptian stuff. Yeah. Egyptian archaeology, all these, it, it comes from, a, if you look at Horus, you look at Jesus, you know all that. Yes. It's the same thing, but we wanted to make it in a way where people could easily digest all this information. And this is right. why we can't take tourists to that area because they're not going to like what we have to say. What do you say about that? Wow. You know, it's so interesting that that tour guide was that open. You know, I, I got to respect that. I think that's really interesting. And, you know, I've, all, I've often thought about this, uh, Mel. You know, if I was in possession, let's say, of, if I were in a government agency or, you know, I had seen actual alien bodies or had been in a craft or I knew... You know, Jesus was initiated in the Great Pyramid if he existed at all, or et cetera, et cetera. You have to wonder, you know, are people ready for it? Now, of course, I believe they are. But maybe I only think that because most of the people I interact with are, you know, people like you or your viewers. But perhaps that would, you know, cause a massive social upheaval if the whole world's Catholic population knew that, you know, they have been deceived. You know, whether that was, you know, for their own good or not. Um, yeah, that, that's very interesting, though, that she got access to that. That's very cool. Speaking of that, speaking of that, a few years ago when I went back to the Vatican, uh, you know, I have a big mouth and I ask questions all the time. And then our guide, I asked him the question, hey, what happened to John Paul I, the Pope? And he oh. looked at me with wide eyes and said, don't ask me that question right now. Ask me the question when we step outside the Vatican back to Italy, then you can ask me. So we went outside and he asked (laughs) me the question again. And I said, what happened? And he just basically said he was poisoned. Of course. He was poisoned. He gave me the reasons why and all that. And then I I interviewed somebody who who lived in the Vatican a couple of years ago, and he confirmed that too. Apparently he wanted to just, he just wanted to make it wide open. What we're seeing today John Paul I wanted to bring all that stuff out to clean the house, and yes. he was not allowed because, as you no. know, the Vatican has a an intelligence apparatus, the Jesuits, oh, yes. who took over. Oh, yes. And the first Jesuit is now in power. Exactly. Yes. That's the military arm of the Catholic Church. Right. 
always was. I mean, founded by Ignatius of, you know, Loyola, who was a soldier, you know, with shins of bright. Yeah, I mean, that's the intelligence militarized arm of, of Catholicism, and they do a very good job. And of course, their motto is, we'll make a child see black and tell them it's white. They'll believe that after enough time. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, I think though, Mel, it's becoming more and more difficult with, you know, shows like this, or just access to information that no matter how much they try to censor it, I think all of that could only be stopped in a pre-internet age you know i think no matter what the sheer momentum of independent people that are just not just talking about it online but going out to these places and looking for themselves and saying like yeah you know what what is this building doing here you know like what is balbeck you know the trilithon doing here like how did that actually get here because they read it in a graham hancock book or something and wanted to go check it out themselves and i think you know eventually Hopefully, you know, over the next decade or, or two, um, this topic won't be so silly because I always tell people, um, it's not me that said Atlantis was not a myth. It was Plato. Plato distinctly and explicitly states as the character of Critias to Socrates, listen, Socrates, this is a strange story, but every word of it is true. It was vouched for by Solon, the wisest of the seven sages. Now, why would you need to preface an allegory with that statement? Why would you need to put the stadia lengths of the canal if it was an allegorical tale about the gods? You know, these are questions that really people don't ask themselves because they don't really engage anymore with the primary material. They just read what is Wikipedia. You know, if you type in Atlantis, what's the first thing that comes up in the biggest search engine in the world? The mythical island of Atlantis right. created by Plato as a fiction. Well, that alone is probably making 90% of people just go, oh, okay, well, Wikipedia says, you know, just like Wikipedia says, Oswald shot JFK and aliens are, you know, it's like, it's kind of unfortunate that we, we live in an age where we have access, if you're willing to look for it, to all information. But at the same time, I would argue it's easier than ever to propagandize and obfuscate true you know so oh, you mentioned google yeah. atlantis or any other term you might see oh we have 300 million results but you can only see about <laughs> 70 of them and most of them are yeah. wikipedia says this and that and it's just propaganda yeah. i call it the gaslighted states of america and like probably the world too because when you ask questions like that they immediately tell you no this is just allegory it's myth mm -hmm. but um, uh, Michael um, South Africa geez I cannot believe that I'm Tellinger telling Michael Tellinger uh, he told me uh, the word myth the real meaning is affidavits signed by priests and kings yes so maybe what we think correct. of mythology <laughs> might be true after all well it's just like you know, Paul Wallace talking about re or, and Mark, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's his name? Marco Biglino? Mauro Biglino in the Naked Bible and Paul Wallace in the, the Eden Conspiracy where, you know, you got a Vatican translator and a former, you know, hermeneutic theologian. And they both reread the Old Testament and said, you know, did it ever occur to people that the word God you know, is not actually in the Old Testament, that every time they use that in the King James Bible, they're replacing, you know, the word Eloha or Elohim, plural. And if 
you look at words like, you know, Moses asking God to show him his glory, that the word that they use for glory is really not what that means in ancient Hebrew, that it means a heavy, you know, chariot of war or device, but a physical object, you know, and just reread that book with that. And you get a different picture of, you know, what these people were talking about. And so it's interesting that, you know, we are the ones, ironically, that are making people like Zeus and Poseidon and, you know, the kings of Atlantis who lived for a long time and had what we would consider supernatural powers or the pharaonic pre-dynastic pharaohs and the demigods, you know, they didn't use that word. They didn't use, you know, monotheistic terminology. They just described them in their own language. But, you know, those characters only exist to us as, you know, Marvel characters, you know, in the Avengers and things like that, that couldn't be real. But, you know, if you were a primitive person who saw a, let's say, a survivor of a highly advanced society who had life extension and augmentation reality and God knows what else technology that came to your civilization, as Casey said, the Atlanteans did to Egypt and mixed with the native peoples there, and others from the Caucasus to create this very pre-dynastic Egyptian culture. Well, then you would think these people were, you know, the Avengers or something because they're doing things and terraforming and using technologies that you've never seen. So, you know, we should pay attention, I think, to what these people are saying. You know, if Elijah tells you, like, I saw a flying wheel in the sky that looked like it was alive with colors going around it, and it took me up, and there was a human-like being inside that dropped me off in another place. Like, well, maybe he's not talking about a storm cloud, you know, in a vision. Maybe he's talking about, like Paul Wallace says, he was picked up by something else, you know, and this was the only language he could use to describe that, you know. I love his... uh... His work as well, Paul uh, Wallace. Right. But I'm thinking right now of, you mentioned certain words. I'm thinking of Israel. Yeah. Is, if you had to dissect the word, is of Ishtar, Ra, and El for Elohim. That's very interesting. What if that word came from that? But I mentioned to you before we started that I also lived in, <laughs> in Mexico in the early 90s. And I remember okay. a, a fellow, a colleague, he uh, was a descendant of the Aztecs. And he okay. knew a lot of stuff, and he and I used to have lots of conversations. And he told sure. me, look at the words Egipto and Mexico. They both rhyme. And I said, what do you mean by this? Well, look at the pyramids. We have pyramids on both sides. Mm-hmm. And he told me, my ancestors say that basically they escaped a cataclysmic event and migrated mm-hmm. to certain parts of the world, to Egypt and the Yucatan Peninsula. And this is before I even studied Edgar Cayce. And I've been studying a lot of Edgar Cayce, and I was doing a refresh yesterday, and I found that that's exactly what Cayce says. It is. Exactly what I just told you is what he says. What do you say? Well, I would also add that look at the etymology of the word Azteca. It means the people from Aztlan. Exactly. Here's Aztlan. Why do the Aztecs have a god called Atlanteotl? who's a man holding the heavens on his shoulders when the Greeks have a Titan named Atlas. So you have Atlante Otto and Atlas, and they're both men supporting the heavens on their back. Then you have a 17-year-old kid in 1886 with no education who writes a 
clairaudiently channeled book of 400 pages describing a past life in Atlantis, in which in an obscure line, Mel, he talks about the final days of Atlantis. And he says, oh, poor Atla, which held the entire world on its shoulders in the arts and sciences. You know, and so, and again, what's the name of the ocean? It's Atlantic crazy. Ocean. <laughs> you know, and it's like, come on, guys, it's really not that hard. And then what's at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, Mel? If you go to my website and look at the second picture. Azores. There's a giant continent we just call the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and Continental Shelf, you know, but it's like it's right there, you know, and it actually makes much more sense that there was a huge landmass there, which Casey again says broke up into five islands in 50,000 BC and then was three islands after the cataclysm of 28,000 BC and so was finally three large islands Post-Tide, Og, and Arion, which I believe, and I state in the book, were the ones the I was describing, which were in the Azores, exactly. And mm-hmm. again, the map Frederick Oliver channeled in 1886, when there was no detailed contour map of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, there was one, and it had no detail. He drew a channeled sketch of what the island of Poside looked like. I superimposed that over a modern bathythermic scan of the ocean floor and it's a 100 percent match which really i almost fell out of my chair because that really creeped me out i gotta be honest with you you know and the the book has a kind of you know zinger or like what the f moment it really is that moment where i show you those two maps and i orient his sketch and i basically put it over the modern map and it's like you're looking at the azores for the likely location of Poside, part of the Atlantean archipelago, which was the center of the Atlantean Empire, which I would argue could stretch from parts of North America, Central America, South America, up to Egypt, including parts of Spain and North Africa. So Plato's story was correct, but it was incomplete because Plato was describing the last days and the final couple centuries. But prior to that, it had reached a high, civil, high level of civilization akin to, say, Star Wars, which, you know, that's maybe another discussion. But I would argue that these franchises, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, etc., really are, I think, almost like Jungian archetypical upwellings from the collective unconscious of this lived reality of Atlantis displayed through fiction. Or perhaps... Hollywood is telling us the truth and the media tells us lies. Or oh, there you, know, you go. <laughs> I mean, terrible. look at Star Trek. They were telling us about all the, this technology that yeah. is now out. And, yes. you know, when you look at the world right now, it almost looks like the dark side and the and the other side, almost Absolutely. like if we're in a Star Wars. Uh, or look at New York City last week. It looked like Blade Runner. It's almost well, like they're trailing, telling us. Oh, and it wasn't interesting, too, that on uh, 6 6 yeah, the sky turned red and then the, the Diablo. sign, Diablo. That's right. <laughs> Hell is coming to me. I mean, they really, they got a great sense of humor. You got to give it to them. You really do. It seems that when you and I are in sync, before you say a word or I say a word, you're you're predicting what I'm saying. And th- that seems <laughs> that we're in the same channel here. But I'm look, I'm thinking of the Azores. Uh, Patricia mm-hmm. Corey, a good friend of this program, lives there. And I, I think I mentioned to she her. She lives there. She lives there. And I, wow, I, I said one day. I sent a message the other day, actually. That's so interesting. Yeah, she's wonderful. And I, I think I asked her once, could these islands be the tip 
or the top of what used to be Atlantis. And she, I think she said, yes. Then you have yeah. Puerto Rico with one of the, the deepest trenches in the world. Could that also yeah. be part of it? But look at the Atlantic Ocean. I always think, why that name? Oh, because of Atlas holding, as you said, uh, from the Greeks. But it's interesting yes. that I've interviewed other people about this subject because I love the subject of Atlantis. Some mm -hmm. people say, no, it's in the Pacific and it's there, it's here. Where do you really think if Atlantis existed? Where was it? Well, again, I would argue that Casey was correct. That at first, well, I'll tell it like this. You know, Casey says that prior to... 50,000 BC, 50,722 BC to be precise. Um, you know, this was a continent that basically matched the current contours of the Atlantic Ridge from about Spain to the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. And that through a misapplication of a directed energy stratospheric weapon that was deployed in 50,722, according to him, to combat the megafauna, it actually created a super volcanic chain reaction and this weapon was beamed into the cores of volcanoes to kill the food supply of the megafauna and he says also precipitated a pole shift that had been in progress already and basically brought on a mini ice age around that time what's really interesting is that that's supported by the journal of quaternary studies that says we have a megafaunal extinction at 50,000 bc that we cannot explain through human hunting it makes no sense Now, I'm not saying that proves it, but that's interesting. It's more evidence that Casey was correct. Now, he says after that, the continent fractured into five large islands. And then in the second destruction, he says what is now the Sargasso Sea, you know, around, I guess, maybe Bermuda, something like that, that fell into the ocean after the crystal was overtuned and basically, you know, fractured that part of the island and broke it off and it sank. And so the final three islands were where the Azores are right now. And what's really fascinating is that the Azores have one of the highest mountains in the world, if you measure it from the base underwater, called Mount Pico. And that's exactly where on the map that the 17-year-old channeler in 1886, who had never probably heard of the Azores, puts for the highest point of Poside, which he calls Pitach Rock. And he says in 11,500 BC, this was an active volcano because his story starts with he's hiking it and it blows. Well, Mount Pico is the largest, one of the largest stratovolcanoes in the world. And it's in the Azores right where he said it was. So it's like, and it's also where Plato says it was, you know, which is why it's so frustrating when people try to tell me it's in the Pacific, it's in the Indian Ocean. It's in the Antarctic. It's like Plato was very specific and only a disingenuous reading of those dialogues will point to the Straits of Gibraltar, or well, I'm sorry, will point to the Pillars of Hercules as anything but the Straits of Gibraltar. It's just, to me, it's dishonest. We would never treat that that same way if the story didn't challenge the historiography. You know, it's very clear to any scholar, any serious scholar that the Straits of Gibraltar are the pillars of Hercules. It's not talking about the island of Thera. He's not talking about Malta, the Straits of Sicily. He's talking about them coming through the Straits of Gibraltar and waging war against the inner ocean, which is distinct from the outer true ocean, Okeanos. You know, why would he have to distinguish it if he's talking about Atlantis in the Mediterranean? You know, but a lot of people don't like it because 
saying, well, we can't find it. And it's like, well, there's a lot of things we couldn't find. We didn't know Troy was real until that's right. Century. People thought that was fake. And then they dug it up and then he found King Priam's tomb. And it's like, well, what about that? We didn't know there was a 20,000 plus year old pyramid called Gunung Padang in Indonesia or Borneo. You know, it's like, what's that all about? But what you know, made it myth in the first place if it was real? What made it myth really was like the last 30 years. And that was the great shock that I realized was that. This subject was very serious until about the 90s, that in the 80s, the New York Times was printing articles that were very seriously discussing, you know, the Azores might be Atlantis, you know, um, and all throughout the 50s, 40s, 20s, some of the most esteemed scholars took this very seriously. But somehow in the 90s and then definitely after the 2000s, and I think, again, it just goes along with everything you said earlier. It's like the subject didn't change, but the curtailing of open discussion on anything changed and you know, whatever you want to call this that we're going through now, it's kind of just like a general blanket on all information that's meaningful and that could empower people or, you know, challenge people to rethink their story and, and give them like, you know, hope that, well, you know, wow, wow, we actually did achieve this and something went wrong and maybe we're reliving that Atlantean episode in 2023 and beyond and, you know, maybe some of the same people that were bad back then are back again, like Casey said, you know, for round five. Um, I don't know, but for round five, you, you let me just take that. Let me unpack a few things you said, because this is interesting. Directed energy weapons. You use those three words. I'm thinking of all the melted rocks we see around the world. We've heard of the walls of Jericho. The great sure. fires. How many times do we, I go to New Orleans, oh, the great fire. San Francisco, mm-hmm. the great yeah. fire. Chicago, New York. How does a city burn like that during that time? Uh, but sure. 9-11, and I don't mean to get conspiratorial here. And well, then the book, the book by Chan Thomas, the well, Adam and Eve story. You yeah, probably know about that. Yeah, Talks that about book. all yeah. the previous research on how we identify when the next one will happen. You can read the book, folks, in our library, yeah. on our website. Look at all these fires again. Could it be that this is ancient technology that they're still using a few days ago? And I'm going to say it. What happened in, in, in New York and in the East Coast with all these, the smog and it almost looked like, like a, a Blade Runner. Yeah. But I have video of fires igniting all at the same time. Could sure. they have used that technology to now say, oh, you know, we need to do something because climate change. Of course. Oh, of course they're going to use whatever they can you know, to push that agenda, because that's the final card, you know, in their little deck of cards. Um, maybe Blue Book is the final, or I'm sorry, uh, Blue, Beam. Blue Beam is their final card. But, you know, the climate lockdown is definitely on their, their list. But, you know, I think a lot of things like HARP or, you know, directed energy weapons from satellites that, you know, the government has reluctantly admitted are true, or just weaponized space-based weapons or even terrestrial things that can bounce off the ionosphere, like heart and things like this. Um, you know, I think these absolutely were willing or unwilling, you know, recreations of technology that absolutely already existed. You know, because again, I tell people, we've had the same brain capacity, probably greater, for at least a quarter of a million years, anatomically. And we're led to believe that we didn't do anything for 195,000 of those, and then 
Suddenly, civilization emerged out of nowhere simultaneously. India, Sumeria, China. I mean, that doesn't really make sense. Because if you look at the history of the last 200 years or less, 120 years, we've gone from horse and buggy to rockets that can land. <laughs> you know what I mean? So why couldn't we in 195,000 years, all things equal, have achieved that state of civilization, been destroyed, rebooted, been destroyed, rebooted, been destroyed, like Casey and all world cultures say we have, you know? <laughs> like, why is that difficult to believe? I think it's arrogance. I think we don't like to, I think it's arrogance and fear. We don't like to admit that we're not the best, especially in the United States in 2023. And we also don't like to admit that all this could go away. That's, a, that's another Pandora's box. Yeah. I remember the late Edgar Mitchell who told me my grandparents came from the east to the west and in just a matter of, in horse and buggy and in 60 sure. years we went to the moon. I mean, so, my God, can you we, imagine? We, you know, I met Edgar Mitchell, actually. I met him in college. Can you believe that? He came well, to my little college, Jupiter, and we actually um, got to ask him, like, are aliens real? And it was a small, closed setting. And he straight up told us, we are not alone. I'll never forget that. <laughs> Interesting, because so, yeah. I asked him in the one and only interview we did back in 2009, I think it was, I asked him, Dr. Mitchell, can you tell us here, if you saw, if you saw something on the moon or the way back that you've never said before? And oh. you can listen to the interview, all of a sudden... <gasps> He started breathing heavily, and we got disconnected. For about a minute, he was breathing, and we got disconnected. Wow. So it makes you wonder <laughs> if a lot of these astronauts went through a lot of mind control when they came back. I'm mean, going to look at him, and again, I don't mean to open this Pandora's box, but sure. how, how many days after the Apollo 11 astronauts, Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, mm -hmm. and, 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 and Adrian Aldrin came back, mm -hmm. it was weeks after, and the very first press conference that they gave it almost looked like they all went uh, attending their parent funeral instead Holy of jumping God. up and down it's a weird interview it's a truly weird interview every time i watch that i think this is bizarre yeah yeah it feels like they have a gun to their head behind the camera or something um yeah you know it could be it could be i mean we know the cia absolutely had the potential to do that at that time they had mastered it by the late 60s actually yeah. but It could also just be, you know, something more mundane, like we'll kill you and all of your family if you open your mouth and hear pictures of people we've done it to. I mean, and we're going to bug your phones for the rest of your life. And basically, that's it. Well, that's exactly what Neil Armstrong told Dr. Stephen Greer. Dr. Stephen Greer wanted to interview Neil Armstrong in a private setting because he was a recluse. And um, through a mediator, uh, Greer received the message saying, if I even meet with you, they're going to kill my family. Wow. He, wow. See? Well, there you go. Yep. I mean, look, you know, people seem to forget that, you know, <laughs> the United States will resort to any and all means to achieve what they need to achieve, including against their own citizens. So once you understand that, you know, once you understand that your own government has killed all the progressive leadership, let's say, of the 60s, JFK, RFK, MLK, Um, I would even go so far as to say Bob Marley. Malcolm X, too. Malcolm X, exactly. Although, you know, had some help probably from 
the nation of Islam after that whole thing. But yeah, I mean, once you know that that's the case, then yeah, why would it be a surprise that they've killed many whistleblowers or, you know, um, killed people that were in interviews that they shouldn't have been in? I mean, look at all the victims of the, they interviewed immediately after JFK, you know, that the Warren reject, the Warren Commission rejected, you know, got interviews with Jack Ruby and other people that nobody, you know, got to interview because they were found dead, you know? So, yeah, I think you're absolutely onto something that there is a very sinister, you know, shadowy arm that has always been there, you know, and not just in the States, but all around that really, you know, decides when things are appropriate and for what reason that they should be allowed to be known. And, you know, that's why I always tell people, you know, if you're waiting for the government of any country to tell you the truth, can you imagine hold your breath. a time when, yeah, I mean, can you imagine a time, Mel, where they, you know, a, a major historian comes out and admits, like, actually, Graham Hancock was right this whole time. There really was a civilization, you know, 12,000 years ago. No, I, I, I would bet my life that, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson will never stray from his story, you know, of what's really on the moon or this or that. You know, you shouldn't ask any questions because, you know, I have a master class. It's like, I think people are just kind of going around that, you know, and that's what I tried to do is I engage with a lot of critics in the third chapter. In fact, the, the whole third chapter of the book is a full on, you know, interaction with so-called debunking community, which are just ideologues that are, for the most part, absolutely ignorant and are not professional historians, but pretend to be and, you know, think that they have clout because, you know, they're witty or ironic, but, you know, when you really shake them um, to the foundations, you realize that they don't have a very good argument. They just are repeating other tired things and basically using ad hominem attacks and, you know, passive aggression to say that you're stupid or crazy. But, um, you know, I, I trust Plato more than I trust a debunker. And I trust thousands of interconnected sources. I mean, I have 400 sources in the book that all point to the likelihood that there was a civilization called Atlantis and, and at the last ice age. And, you know, it's going to be very difficult to prove that to the world unless we find what, you know, some people like Casey have suggested is an actual hall of records. But, um, you know, I'd say you don't really need to find the hall of records. You just need to look at what is already there. Look at, like you said, look at the connections between Teotihuacan and, you know, Giza, look at pyramid in China, look at pyramids on the Azores, pyramids in the ocean off the coast of the Azores. You know, what are these things doing here? Um, and, you know, it's nice to see that on some level, you know, people like Graham Hancock and others have, have broken through, you know, and faced incredible attacks. You know, Absolutely. ad hominem, he's a racist, you know, and all this BS because he's he dare bring the, you know, an alternative view of, of history to the past. You know, God forbid that they ever know that the Houghton Mifflin, you know, textbook from high school and college was wrong. You know, so I don't know there's a lot of vested interest. You know, you're talking about like the everybody talks about the military industrial complex, but you know, I would argue that there's a there's an educational you know industrial complex that's just as bad, an academia industrial complex that's in some ways you know just as pernicious. You know, and in fact, even more dangerous because you're talking about generations of people raised by 
I mean, some historians have an open mind, but the vast majority are from that debunking, play it safe crowd. And so if you get a PhD in Egyptology, you ain't getting the degree if you think the space is 36,000 years old. You know, you're just not. You're a kook and you're out of the department and you're ridiculed and, you know, they'll find passive aggressive ways to push you out of the academy. So, by the way, we have to take our one and only break. And by the way, I apologize because I've deviated from the main topic. But as you know, (laughs) as you know, everything is interconnected, right? So let me just say this before the break. I have a few things to say. Uh, Michael Cremo, you mentioned people who have been ostracized. Michael Cremo, he told me the story of when he went to Moscow. He had a a conference scheduled for the University of Moscow. And at the last minute, Uh they blocked him. They blocked everybody. Nope, sorry, this has been canceled by the... I don't know wow. what part of the government, but all of a sudden, some people say, you know what? Let's take it to the private. Let's go to a private building. And they had 10 more, 10 times more people that were going to be attending his original conference because they said, if the government is saying no to that, we want to know. A few years ago, probably 2012, I think it was, or 2014, I was at a, a UFO conference in Phoenix and I was with AJ Gavard, who recently passed away. He's the the UFO guy from Brazil and others, all of a sudden he told me, hey, by the way, we're going to go meet with the the Nation of Islam today. You're like, what do you mean? We're going to meet with Dr. Louis Farrakhan. He's interested wow. in, in UFOs. Do you want to come? Wow. And I said, no, I'll let you go because uh, he's a little bit radioactive. I'm very interested in knowing what you guys are going to discuss, but I don't want to see myself right. in pictures that may be misconstrued in the future. Right. Uh, right. Puma Pumku, for example, in South America. Uh, you see these magnificent stones placed in a way that we can't even imagine. And we're told, oh, they were they were transported with trees. But at that altitude, there are no trees. No. Then you have Lake Titicaca yeah. at the top with salt water, with fish that are supposed to be in the ocean. Uh, China paying farmers to to put grass on top of pyramids because they don't want anybody to know that there were people there before the Chinese and we found some uh, red-headed mummies. Uh, Mm -hmm. Dr. Samir Osmanagish from uh, the the Boston Pyramid. Yes. You know, and I could go on and on and on. It's all the culture editors blocking the info. And I'm glad that I have Michael Lefemme here today discussing so much. We have one more hour to come. Michael, how can people buy the book Visions of Atlantis and learn more about your work? Yes, they can buy it from Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and also through my website, michaellefemme.com. And actually, it's now finally available in Spanish. I translated it myself, so forgive if there are any typos. It's me. I take full credit, but I think it's correct. And um, also available in audiobook and Kindle. I really enjoyed the book, and I hope folks that you can read it too. One more hour to come. This is Mahasalrik, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, 
just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know 